stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great honor to welcome Scott Galloway, founder and chairman of L2, professor with NYU Stern, previous board member with Urban Outfitters, Eddie Bauer, New York Times, Gateway Computers. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'd love to paint the picture of media in the light of the four horsemen that you talk about, particularly receptors versus intelligence. Sure. So if you look at in the US, the S&P 500, that's the 500 stocks that the S&P index tracks, only 13 of them have outperformed the S&P index each year for the last five years. So one that reflects our economy has definitely become a winner-take-all economy where the majority of the gains are, are, being, are being procured or captured by a smaller and smaller number of firms. But if you look at those 13 companies, somewhere between eight and 10 of them are really driven by algorithms. And that is whether it's Amazon or Netflix, there's primarily uh, behind the curtain, uh, a series of receptors that gather data, calculate the data, and then try and spit back an improved product. So we call it algorithmically driven. So what are the primary drivers of that algorithm? We would say that it's two things. It's receptors. It's the ability to gather information from a bunch of different users, uh, hopefully at scale, uh, real time. And then your ability to take that information and layer on intelligence, if you will, and that is intelligence learns, adapts, offers something better, learns, if you will. Netflix, every time you watch a program, Netflix has very basic intelligence, and then it says, all right, if you're watching season four, episode eight of House of Cards, we think that you might enjoy season four, episode nine, and it begins auto-playing episode nine right after you see the credits for eight. So that's basic intelligence, but nonetheless, it's powerful. Amazon has, obviously, uh, hundreds of millions of receptors in the form of their uh, interface with their uh, customers tracking what you're buying and it will customize your homepage to reflect the type of product categories that you have shown an interest in previously. They also have tremendous receptors being installed in people's homes with Amazon Echo that will record your voice preferences. It has crawlers that go out and look at what other sites are charging for products such that they can ensure they're always offering a similar or lower price. So this notion of putting out as many receptors as possible and then absorbing that information real time and then turning it around and making the product better. So another example might be Waze. The moment you turn on Waze, you've made the product better, that you've become a receptor using GPS and algorithms and artificial intelligence that are immediately able to update traffic patterns and recommendations to every driver based on your usage of it. The, the way to think of this, Aiden, is that imagine a car that got more valuable as you drove it more and put more mileage on it. These companies, if you will, are using algorithms to become sort of Benjamin buttons. And that is the more they're used, the better they become. Uh, that type of reverse perishability, if you will, seems to be common among all the companies that are outperforming the rest of the economy. So again, it's this algorithm of receptors, number of touch points where we can gather information, and then our ability to create that information or turn that information into intelligence and make the product better almost almost sort of organically or um, uh, automatically. And, and those, uh, those receptors then can transfer into revenue. I know Amazon's an easy one, but a lot of our audience won't understand the likes of Facebook. But laser targeting versus scattergun targeting at scale is where companies like Facebook can really, really win. Well, Facebook's power is that it's, it's um, when you type in something into Google, uh, if, if someone were to list everything that you've typed uh, into Google with your name and your picture above it, it would be very uncomfortable. We've all typed in some crazy stuff into that search query box. So the private nature of the Google search box, if you will, is a bit of a disadvantage for them because consumers are not that comfortable with you taking individual receptor intelligence from your Google search queries and then tailoring ads. So if you said if you had shingles and you were typing in symptoms and treatment of shingles and all of a sudden you were served Shingle ads, it might make you uncomfortable that Google had registered that you had this ailment. You might not be comfortable with them knowing that. Whereas the open nature of Facebook, meaning that anything you put on Facebook, by virtue of the fact you're putting it on Facebook, is being expressed to a, a larger community set, means that people are probably more comfortable 
with Facebook taking that data on an individual level and then creating intelligence on it and serving you specific ads. So if you get a specific ad based on your behavior, what you've you've put on Facebook, people aren't quite as freaked out and people are okay with Facebook, if you will, doing micro-targeting at an individual level. Whereas with Google, we want them to aggregate us into groups and then serve us based on that group. So Facebook has an inherent advantage over Google based on it's the explicit nature of the content we're giving them and our comfort as a result with their targeting. If, if we were to begin, start searching uh, about teenagers on Google and then they start serving us ads for products for teenagers, we might find it uncomfortable that they had ascertained that. Whereas if we're talking about our teenagers and putting photos of our teenagers on Facebook, people seem to feel more comfortable as it's been a, an explicit or overt communication to a broader community, thereby making it uh, less private, if you will. So Facebook has got sort of this peanut butter and chocolate combination of massive scale, a billion and a half users, and the ability to target as specifically as households in a specific zip code that have teens that have recently received their driver's licenses. So it's it's got that targeting and scale combination, the likes of which we really haven't seen before in media. Yeah, and I, lo I love what you say there. It's best foot forward data that we're giving them. So it's data that we're totally comfortable with sharing. When you kind of look back, there was advantages there for a lot of companies before. So Apple, for example, and the information, the receptors they had in iTunes, for example, and Amazon with their review model, they had receptors in place and they've almost let that slip, that initial advantage that they had. Yeah, so think of Apple. Apple, if you look at music, probably the company that does the best idea of this um, artificial intelligence or agility or whatever the term would be, this receptors times intelligence is Spotify. That when you follow someone and you update your playlist, the algorithms there begin updating your, the people who follow you, their playlist. It starts to figure out if you're listening specifically to a lot of, uh, of, of uh, a specific playlists, it looks at who that playlist is liked by and starts sharing lists and figuring out and making recommendations that are sort of more in tune or that you're more likely or more likely to be correct. So Spotify, probably more than any music company, does the best job of this. However, Apple is really the one that invented it by just simply stating which of their tracks on an album were being downloaded the most. And that popularity gave consumers an extraordinary amount of value because essentially what it gave you was the 15 or $20 or 90 or 95% of the value of a CD, which we were forced to pay 20 bucks for, uh, for two bucks. Because typically 90% of the value of an album is usually in one or two songs. And some people, some purists will say, no, it's the whole album. But the majority of us find that we'd rather just listen to a couple of the songs rather than have to buy the whole thing. And then them registering and then automatically updating what songs were being downloaded the most immediately added value to the end consumer. So they were really the first ones. Uh, and they've been blown by in terms of paid subscribers to Apple Music. They've been blown by by a host of people, whether it's Amazon Music or Spotify or even I think even Pandora may have more paid users now. But they they were first and they've they've let it slip away. Yeah, and you mentioned subscription there as well, because a lot of people in, in media, for example, would see subscription as the great white hope that gives you data and that gives you implicit data on your user as well as explicit data. But you see subscription as lacking scale. And without that scale, it really can't compete with the likes of Facebook, Google and, and the other horsemen. Well, so when you say subscription, subscription is a loaded word. So if it's signing up to get eight razors every week from Dollar Shave Club or Harry's, I would argue that that model doesn't pay off in the long run because it's actually not that intelligent and that it's not, a, it's not adapting to your needs, your skin type, your usage. You sign up once and it, it records once one data set, what product you want and how often, and then that's it. Whereas subscription revenue models are absolutely the way to go. So charging $9.99 a month for Spotify and then the intelligence, if you will, is updated real time as opposed to just the initial purchase when you fill out the form for Glossy Box or Birch Box, which are subscription-based box programs. I don't think those work. So it's really, it's really all about how often are you absorbing data from the end user and then responding to it and updating and making the product better. So subscription business model is absolutely the way to go. A subscription service that only records or takes in data once at the very beginning and then assumes that is that is the product you want to 
experience and the same cadence for the rest of your life, that that's not what I'd call a an intelligent product. And I think those I think those um, those services are short lived. I, I think you're seeing it in the data. A lot of people that sign up for subscription services and the subscription service doesn't adapt or or respond to their lifestyle changes. People end up with a bunch of stuff they don't want or not enough of it. And they end up canceling. There's huge churn in those programs. Yeah, and, and another thing you mentioned is the lack of that intelligence. So you you talk about the four horsemen having this recycling of intelligence straight back into the product in real time, so the product gets better with every time you use it. Meanwhile, we see people kind of go, you know, Twitter's irrelevant now, or Twitter's not at the races anymore, as well as the likes of Pinterest, and it's because of that lack of intelligence behind the product. So Twitter. There's some intelligence, but I would argue that, uh, and it might be in their advertising, that when I'm on Google and I type in a query, I have a lot of confidence that what I'm getting is automatically updated by everybody else's queries. And it sends me relevant information, and I think Google has more authority around pointing me to the correct information than any entity in the history of mankind. That people trust Google more than they trust their priest, their father, their rabbi, their professor, one-fifth of all search queries, 20%, are questions that have never been asked before in the history of mankind. And it's hard to imagine anybody that has so much credibility that one out of five questions they received have never been asked before. So Google is really the original gangster here. And it constantly updates searches and, and moves up the sources of information based on what other people have found relevant. Twitter, it's hard for me immediately to understand how Twitter is taking advantage of the amount of information um, they're getting from other people. They do have some stuff, you know, what's trending. You get to see what's been retweeted, what's been liked. But for me, the product feels largely static over the last few years. It doesn't, it doesn't feel as if based on what's happening, you're getting a ton of additional or incremental value. Now, that's not to say Twitter isn't an incredibly relevant product. My prediction on Twitter is it's similar to a a PBS or a Wikipedia. Twitter becomes part of our a valuable part of our everyday life and our culture, but it's never able to really monetize or become commercially as viable as the other ones. I think it's it's uh, fast becoming a hugely relevant part of our society that is is uh, is not worth as much as it is economically. I think they're gonna have a tough time monetizing that relevance, if you will. And that's a nice uh, segue for, for traditional media because with the scale and use, and as you say, the recycling of data back into the product to improve it, so many traditional players, if they're the four horsemen, they're the stable boy actually changing the horse's dung and cleaning out the stable because they are just not at the races with the horses at all because they are, haven't even got data programs. They haven't even got personalization correct. And I know some, some of the newspapers, for example, are far ahead of others. But how do you see that panning out? Because you say about that Twitter becoming like a PBS, for example. Do you see that happening with a lot of media? Because it has a place in the world but it doesn't have a monetization place. Yeah, cleaning dung, I like that. So, you know, newspapers and magazines are an example of, they have decent reach, um, you know, millions of people, but not, you know, usually hundreds of thousands, actually, not even millions. And the intelligence is pretty weak there. Uh, there's some that do a great job. The New York Times is, I think, one of the more innovative companies on online. Washington Agreed. Post does a good job. But they haven't figured out an elegant way to serve up or to make content better based on uh, readership. There are there is some stuff. I mean, a basic thing is articles read. You know, most read articles is a huge value add. That's what I when I'm on the New York Times homepage, I immediately look at the right and I see what's been read the most. That is that is a basic form of intelligence and receptors that adds a lot of value and makes the product better. And is an example of how the New York Times dot com is more valuable in some ways to the end consumer than the New York Times and its print. Edition. They haven't been able to take that usage, if you will, and immediately translate it into a value add for their advertisers. It's similar to the way that Facebook's been able to offer better targeting or Google's been able to run relevant um, uh, ads across the right rail based on what you're searching for. They just haven't been able to do that. I also think they made kind of one of the biggest mistakes in the history of business, allowing Google to crawl their data and slice it up and then serve it to the highest bidder. And that's not to say the New York Times shouldn't have been in the business of search, but I think the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal all should have bound together, turned off Google, and then licensed their content to the highest bidder and made the other content platforms sort of a sewer of cat picks and fake news. And instead, they let them come in, slice and dice their contents, 
put it next to other content, some of it credible, some of it not, thereby debasing their their own content, similar to if Rolex were to start distributing through a low-end Army Navy store, if you had Rolexes next to Casio watches, it debases the Rolex brand. I think these brands have such incredible artisanal almost journalism that they shouldn't be seen next to some of the stuff you find on Google and Facebook. In addition, they've let, essentially, they've traded kind of dollars for dimes, and that is the, the implicit agreement was, you give us your content, we'll send you traffic. Well, Google can take that content and run it against a search ad or a, a Google AdWord, which they can get 10 times the revenue that the Times gets for running a banner across an article that someone may go to. And you think, well, okay, fine, that, that's the agreement, but it shouldn't be the agreement. The bottom line is Google has the mechanism to, to, to monetize it, so the New York Times should be charging Google to crawl their content. And instead, they fell into this trap and this kind of BS notion that information wants to be free and started giving them their content. It'd be tantamount to, I'm trying to use a European reference, if the Premier League let you know, uh, Sky or whoever, or Canal, whoever the big cable networks over there, crawl their content and uh, show you know, Arsenal versus Tottenham and, and cut that concept up and then serve it however they want it. They don't let them do that. They charge them for the content, recognizing that content as value. For some reason, a lot of media, specifically print media companies, have decided their content doesn't have as much value and aren't charging these uh, platforms for access to their content. So I've been a big evangelist for all of the major media publications that have made an enormous investment in content with its great journalism or foreign bureaus should shut off Google, should shut off Facebook. They should all bind together and then license their content to the highest bidder. I think it's it's literally they stuck a gun in their mouth when they let Google crawl their content, then they took the gun out of the mouth and shot themselves in the foot when they participated in Facebook instant articles. Facebook and Google are these guys' frenemy minus the friend part, and they need to shut them off. Yeah, and we see it in so many industries, Scott. It reminds me of what happened in telcos where you know, you have a Verizon or a Telefonica doing a deal with Apple in the early days to go, yeah, we've got exclusive for six months while we hand our whole, our whole customer base over to you. And you become the operator. You have WhatsApp. You have your own Apple communication direct messenger. And it takes me out of the game. And, and all that's left is where the SIM becomes software. And, and in a way, they've outsourced their audience to a third party. And it's just a cycle we've seen time to time again. And to your point about being the evangelist of bringing together all the media, they all need to do this because it's again happening, say, for radio, where you have TuneIn and these aggregators. And they're actually putting the Rolex beside as you said, the cheap Casio watch and the direct audience relationships with the aggregator rather than with the brand. What can happen? Because the guys just don't seem to be coming together or seeing this and don't want to make the first move of joining together, joining forces. Well, there's some, they're worried about legal restrictions, they're worried about antitrust. And also there's, you know, everybody, there's sort of a cool kid effect. Everybody wants to be seen as getting it. So they all want to put out press releases saying they're working with Facebook and Google, that they're embracing the future. And their traffic would decline substantially. So these are companies that are built on sort of this eyeball model. And more eyeballs means more viewership means when your model is, your rate card is cost per thousand views. It's sort of anathema or heresy to do anything that cuts your traffic. But where I think these guys have screwed up is they pursued a mass model instead of a scarcity and premium pricing model. And I think similar to the way Hermes doesn't distribute Birkin bags through Walmart, they should be focused on scarcity and making their they're making their content rare and hard to find, and as a result, commanding a price premium around it. Now, you know, I've, I've pitched this to a bunch of them. They've all said no. Uh, I think if you know, I think some people acknowledge well, maybe that that the time to do that might have been ten years ago, but now it's too late. That none of us have enough power to put a dent in people's affinity for Facebook or Google, but I don't I don't think that's true. I think if they all got together and said, okay, we're gonna license all of our content to either Facebook, Google, Twitter, you know, Alibaba, whatever it is, and one and one only, and we're gonna do it on a say a, every three years we're gonna renew the contract to the highest bidder, similar to what FIFA does or similar to what the Olympics does with TV networks, I think they'd get I think they'd garner huge bids because these if there was only one platform where you could get content from Vogue, the New York Times, the Financial Times, 
and Der Spiegel, I think people slowly but surely would decide, would have a preference for the platform that is the only one that has access to that content. Uh, so I, I don't think it's too late. I think there's still an opportunity. I think they have to get together. I think they've all seen, you know, Ronald Reagan used to say if aliens landed Russia and the U.S. would figure out a way to get along. I think aliens have landed. And in retail, it's Amazon and media, it's Facebook and Google. Google. And these guys do need to start fighting back. And some of the way they're going to fight back is by creating alliances. But so should it have happened 10 years ago? Yeah, but I still don't think it's too late. Yeah, and even though the platform is actually on fire and, you know, there's been petrol poured on it every day, there doesn't seem to be an urgency from a lot of media outlets to do this. And and it's a plain, obvious play. And it'll also probably get you around things like ad blocking if you actually join forces on that as well. What do you see as an impetus for the these media companies to, to get their act together? Well, near-death experiences, I think, a burning <laughs> platform where they're, you know, they realize that, you know, they, they all like, you know, every one or two years, there's some sort of sign of life, whether it's digital or they, they have a year-on-year increase in their digital, their digital revenues increase more than their print declines. But year-on-year, what you're finding is these companies are just becoming a shadow themselves and that their business model less. You know, they, they have to acknowledge what has gotten them here today isn't going to get them where they need to be. And so they're going to have to rethink their business model. And the notion that digital would somehow in its current form would replace the loss in print revenues is just a delusion. And, and the way they're responding is by cutting costs and cutting journalists and cutting overhead. And there's only so much cutting that can go on before they have to figure out a way to grow revenues. And there's one place there's only really, in my opinion, all all paths lead to the same place, and that is unless they can figure out a way to tap in and extract advertising revenues from the bigger platforms, they're going to slowly but surely become shadows of themselves. The, the good and the average ones will go out of business, and the great ones will just be smaller companies that eventually will be some vanity or trophy buy for a billionaire who has an affection uh, for for the brand. And rather than, you know, yeah. effectively, Republicans and alpha males by billionaires, by football teams and soccer teams and Democrats and, you know, the, the, the guys that were on the chess club and the guys that didn't play sports who become billionaires by newspapers. <laughs> and so we're, we're either going to have an environment where every, you know, newspaper company or kind of media company has to be purchased by a billionaire that made his or her money somewhere else, which I don't think is a good thing. I think that's, the, the, you know, a profit motive and profitable media companies are the healthier ones. They're going to have to figure out a way to tap into search and social revenue, and right yeah. now they they have not. And they're miles they're miles away from it. And another another question on that, Scott, is a lot of people kind of ask, should I set up? I'm thinking of starting a blog, or I'm still starting starting this magazine style website. M- my advice is always don't do it because their their only chance is really to be bought by a newspaper group. But the newspaper groups now don't have revenues to do that. That was maybe five years ago when newspapers or media outlets were grappling for some type of digital outlet or digital audience based on Facebook reach. What's your advice to somebody like that? So it's the same advice I would give to someone who's thinking about becoming a doctor. I think being a doctor, at least in the U.S., has become a, you know, a less, it's become a difficult job. It's a ton of education, a ton of debt you have to take on to pay for that education. And then it's a, it's a, it's a job that's not nearly as high paying as it used to be. But some people just have to be doctors, the ones that were taking your temperature when they were eight years old, and they've always dreamed, dreamed of being a doctor. And for those people, it's not about economics. It's about pursuing their dream. There are some people that just are dying to write and don't want to work through a traditional outlet and have a vision for something and put together a blog. And, you know, you're not going to stop those people. And, and, and having said that, just recognize you better get a lot of emotional reward out of it because it is a terrible business. Every year, the prices, the CPMs are what you're able to get for advertising revenue on a blog get cut in half. The, the amount of scale you need to have a, a viable, self-sustaining blog is just enormous. Yeah. Uh, you know, We're talking tens of millions of, of views a month just to get to break even. So I would say it's a passion play. It's something that, you know, do it if you if you want to try it, but do not quit your day job. This is a near impossible way to make a living. Retail, Scott, last question for you. We see so many retailers in a debt spiral and they're just spinning out of control and grasping at straws, dropping prices. 
while they're while Amazon just goes from strength to strength with that reinvestment of customization and implicit and explicit input. What's your advice for retailers? So retail is tough, and a lot of it, you know, some of it is Amazon, but a lot of it is just basic structural factors, such as there's too much in the U.S. I think there's six or seven square feet of retail space for every one there is in Britain. So the U.S. is just overstored, and with or without Amazon, stores are going to struggle. A lot of people say department stores are dying in the hand of Amazon, but if you look at what's happened to department stores, every department has sort of been bested by a special retailer that offers a better offering. Beauty was sort of the last department to have a real stronghold in department stores in the U.S. And now you have Sephora and Ulta who do a better job than any of the beauty departments in any department store. So Amazon has gone after these guys, but there were there's sort of a perfect storm of bad things ready to hurt retail that were waiting regardless of Amazon. Uh, you have consumers shifting more money into things like food and travel, buying less stuff or, or reallocating that capital. You have a weak kind of low growth economy. So you have the mother of all, you know, uh, of storms waiting for retail. And then Amazon just just adds insult to injury. There are some that are working. Traditionally, the ones, especially retailers that have, they have sort of an experience, if you will, and that is they're going for some sort of consumer discovery at an Urban Outfitters or to speak to an expert, whether it's at Home Depot or Best Buy or Sephora. So there are examples of, of retailers that are breaking through and still winning or offering just a superior value proposition. Warby Parker, $99 for glasses in an environment where you could have easily spent five or 600 bucks by the time you walked out with the pair you wanted. So there are winners. However, there has been, there's just an absolute bloodbath over here. And I think it's starting to happen in Europe among retailers that don't have a really, you know, quote unquote, strong point of differentiation against Amazon or other players. Okay. So what advice do you have for retailers? I mean, A, it's from a technology standpoint, it has to be a multi-channel offering. People don't live in isolation of any one medium. You have to be able to offer proprietary merchandise or at a minimum a proprietary experience because at the end of the day, if I get it on Amazon, I'm probably going to order it there because I can get it fast and for less money. And you're going to have to, uh, in my opinion, zig the other way as Amazon is trying to pull people out of the equation, invest in robots to make things faster and cheaper. I think you have to invest in human capital and have that those cast members at a Sephora, those blue shirts at a Best Buy, or those gold aprons at a Home Depot um, that make the in-store experience superior. I do think there's still a huge opportunity. You know, Care4 makes a pretty big investment in its personnel and retraining such that if you're looking for the right tomato, there's someone there who actually understands uh, produce. Uh, so I do think there's, you know, retail is, retail is not going away by any stretch of the imagination, but we have what you would call a reckoning right now where you could see somewhere between 10 and 30% of the retail brands that are out there right now aren't around in 10 years. Uh, it's just a difficult, difficult place to operate. Uh, it's been a long time coming. Amazon is just one factor. Amazon gets blamed for everything. Uh, what's unusual about Amazon right now is that when retail goes down as a composite, as an index of all their stocks go down, Amazon goes up because whereas most stocks in the same sector trade in sympathy or lockstep with one another, Amazon is actually inversely correlated. People are now assuming that what's good for Amazon is bad for the rest of retail. The assumption is it's a zero-sum game, and then when Amazon's winning, other retailers are losing. So it's, it's an extraordinarily interesting time for retail, which means it's great for Amazon and bad for everybody else and a few other players that are breaking through. Uh, but like, there's no silver bullet. Retail is a difficult environment right now, similar to your advice to people thinking about the blog business. Don't go into retail unless you have no choice. Some people are born and they just have to be in it. But I would say it's a very difficult environment right now. Okay. And, and last question, Scott, because you've, you've touched on it there, was the human capital. So in a world shifting towards AI and screenless world where you have assistants like Alexa for Amazon, where do you see that playing out? Because it seems like Amazon, again, have a distinct advantage in that world. And maybe Apple, I'm not so sure about Siri, but maybe Apple. And that takes out stuff like, for example, there's a lot of commentators that would say that takes out advertising, so digital advertising, and it takes out Google's model if you have Alexa being the, being the, the search engine of choice, if you will. It's going to be very strange. I think, I think the two technologies, I'm always being uh, critical of technologies that being sort of overhyped. I think virtual reality is overhyped, Internet of Things is overhyped, wearables. 
The technologies I think that are quote unquote underhyped are texting. I think the majority, a lot of our life and commerce is going to be done via texting. And then so messaging. And then two, I think voice is huge. And anyone who's in marketing or in retail should really get an Amazon Echo just to see because you start to see the potential of it. And the strange thing about ordering, you, I, I have no doubt that people are going to start ordering replenishables and basics and then they'll go to more sophisticated consumer purchases just using their voice uh, in their own home. What you start to think about you know, in terms of how it would change the ecosystem is that when you go into a Tesco or a Walmart or a Kroger, you see packaging, you see a price, you see shelf placement, you see the other products around it. When you order something via voice, you oftentimes order by category. You might say more IPA beer or more paper towels. It's unlikely you're going to list a brand. So Amazon's now going to have the authority to kind of pick your brands for you, trade brands off against one another or substitute their own private label brand. You're also not seeing price. So you're going to probably end up with the voice that you think has such tremendous credibility to give you the right price because you're not going to be there to actually see and compare prices when you do it by voice. And the brand that has that credibility is is uh, Amazon. Walmart has it, but they don't have credibility around fulfillment or around technology right now. But you could see an enormous transfer in power from organizations that have brands that have been amazing at packaging, getting on the right, getting at eye level in terms of shelving placement, getting the right circular in front of you, making sure that they were priced competitively. Whereas if you just say more detergent, all the investment Procter & Gamble has made in the Tide brand and the packaging and the innovation, you know, it becomes it becomes less important when you're just ordering by voice and by category. So I think Amazon Echo has incredible potential to disrupt traditional purchase patterns. And that disruption will largely benefit Amazon. And it goes back to this receptors and intelligence. Amazon is putting receptors in our house such that all we need to do is say, Alexa, you know, a barbecue this week or more beer or send me, you can see it someday going, send me three quotes for auto insurance for my, uh, for my, you know, Mercedes C class 280 or whatever it is. You can see it getting so frictionless and so easy to buy things. And the majority of the purchases when we make are low consideration purchases that are seen as a nuisance. When you go buy a car, when you go buy a pair of Christian Louboutin shoes, those are joyful and fun and you want to be involved. But most purchases, we want less involvement and voice is almost frictionless. So I think voice is a long way, uh, Aiden, of saying I think voice could potentially reorganize the entire kind of consumer brand retail ecosystem. And if I were any retailer or if I were a kid coming out of, uh, out of college right now, I'd want to be the guy or gal that really understands the technology, the applications of voice. I think voice could be, quote unquote, the next, the next big wave. Brilliant, Scott. Well, listen, I really appreciate your time. Scott Galloway, founder and chairman of L2 and clinical professor of marketing at NYU Stern Business School. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Aiden. Best of luck. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. No worries. Bye now. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great honor to welcome Gene Fine. Gene, it's, it's going to be a struggle to do this intro, man, because you've done so many amazing things. CEO at Digital Music Network, co-founder and CEO of Berkshire Music Glen Productions. You were a concert series operator with great artists such as Bob Dylan, the Neville Brothers, Doobie Brothers, Willie Nelson, Marley Brothers, many, many others. You were the patent holder of over 100 patents now and 250 patents pending with your genetics operation and your CEO and inventor there. Your CEO at Pombolo Technologies. You've worked with Bill Gates Foundation, James Cameron, and market-leading technology companies. I hope I did your credit there, Gene. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Aiden. That's a wonderful introduction. Uh, I'm honored to be on your show today, and uh, just speaking with you, I can I can tell we have a lot in common, and uh, just very appreciative of the opportunity to speak with you today. I think the best thing to do is just, if you would, give us an introduction to your journey, maybe even before your professional journey. So your mindset, and then how you progressed to where you are today? Sure. Uh, well, my mindset was I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, as the son of a MIT engineer and a speech pathologist. And consequently, I don't have a Boston accent because she would not 
allow us to eat our wonderful fried potatoes and if we spoke with a Boston accent. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And uh, I was I grew up uh, being very competitive, playing sports all the time, and still love sports. Um, and I think that uh, competitiveness has driven the way that I've approached uh, business and entrepreneurship. And uh, after I went to school, I started uh, managing bands in Boston, and I was able to get a job offer to work on a music television show in Los Angeles. So I moved out there, and that was how things started for me in the entertainment business. And from the entertainment business, I began working with technology companies who are interested in entertainment and um, consulting for them. When I became CEO of Digital Music Network, I uh, fell in love with Invention. Invention's been a big part of my life since then and developing inventions, developing technologies and developing new products and spinning them out into companies that we nurture. And uh, I've been very fortunate the whole way because I've had such great friends, family, co-workers, and mentors who enabled me to be successful. And uh, that's really the key to any success that I've had has been the, the people that have been so supportive of me as a person and as a professional. We were talking before the show, and if you don't mind me saying that, you didn't have it easy in school. You, you, you have dyslexia. It seems to me you you never saw it as a disadvantage and it's one of these in the world it's framed as a disadvantage and in the education system it's framed as a disadvantage because when a gift like that can be liberated and it can be seen as a gift you can have results like you and your inventive mind and your up your ability to see around corners and spot the next gap in the market well thank you very much i think that is true for myself with this dyslexia and probably for many others is that we think a little bit differently because our brains are different. For me, that's been a huge advantage. I think now in many educators are more sensitive to students who have those kind of different qualities such as dyslexia. And it's not looked upon today as such a scarlet letter as it was when I was in school and when people couldn't even identify what it was. How did you deal with that, Gene? Like, you know, I read about this thing called AQ, which is adversity quotient, and it comes from overcoming adversity. And, you know, sometimes you get it from sport, and sometimes you get this kind of grit and determination from there. And most successful people have a huge, uh, very high adversity quotient, and you seem to be, you seem to have that, and it, it's part of your success. I think that is, that is probably true. I think the way that I was able to overcome it was, you're right, I, I was very competitive, so I didn't uh, want people to tell me I couldn't do things. I developed a series of cues um, which helped me overcome some of the stumbling blocks with Dia. For instance, I was a huge baseball fan in Boston and still am growing up. I would uh, imagine myself sitting behind home plate at Fenway Park and I knew that Carl Yastrzemski played left field and Dwight Evans played right field. So I would just simply go through that hand motion with myself. And that's how I would always remind myself of what was left and right. When someone asked me directions someplace or where is something, that's how I would determine left from right. And then after a while, it just became ingrained. And so I developed a series of cues like that, whether it had to do with letters or had to do with um, the way that I solved the math problem. And by developing those series of cues, starting from very simple cues like the left and right one we just discussed, I was able to navigate through some parts of the disability that would hold me back for traditional learning paradigms. That thinking that that gives you, that way to overcome and, and not let any adversity get you down, it's almost like you can break off the wing mirrors and just keep on going. I think that's one of the things a lot of people give up. You know, there's that famous story of Napoleon Hill talked about giving up three feet from gold when they're almost there because you hit adversity after adversity, but the person who keeps going and, and overcomes them eventually wins. Yeah, I think one thing that's helpful about that is you can't let a, a bad day or a series of bad days or some struggling months, you can't let that get you down. You just have to wake up and address the next day. And I think that's really important when you're building a business or rolling out an opportunity because 
when you're building a business and rolling out an opportunity, the main thing you have to do in order to be successful is convince other people that this is an opportunity that they need, that they need to be a part of, that they need to purchase, that they need to support. A big part of that is perseverance and going around and and being willing to um, put yourself on the line every day for what you're trying to build, business-wise or personally or philosophically. Yeah, and it's it's something actually I, I'm always wary of with my kids is that I don't want to make it difficult for them, but I don't want to make it too easy. I want them to earn what they have and I want them to understand that you need to work and you need to be able to overcome obstacles. You don't want to be too much of a helicopter or a lawnmower parent smoothing the way in front because that's not life. Yep, you're right. And it's a tough thing to resist too because you want the best for your kids and you want to give your kids the best and you know you've worked hard to give your kids the best, but the the reality is that they have to develop those same tools on their own, those same coping tools and if everything's provided to them relatively easy they might not have those coping tools. they won't learn how to develop them so listen gene sorry man I, I went on a total segue there we'll come back to the pathway of your career you got involved in managing bands and then you got to manage some awesome artists you're a grammy voting member still and this was probably the start of that journey for you as well with berkshire music glen productions what happened with berkshire music glen productions was um when i moved out to california I was fortunate enough to work on ABC in concert for five years and, you know, I was executive in charge of production and producer and, and directed um, over 100 segment episodes. And that's when I really became a Grammy voting member. And then from there, uh, moved back to the East Coast and we started a concert series at a baseball park called Wakona Park that was um, the oldest baseball park in the country, over 112 years old. And we were very fortunate to get Dylan to come and uh, we held the largest event in the history of that 112-year-old stadium. So that was kind of cool. We liked doing that. And then Dylan liked it enough that he came back um, the next year, which he he really doesn't do that. So it was a great experience, and and uh, it was great to bring music to this town that uh, did not have a lot of Pittsfield, which did not have a lot of uh, national artists coming to the town at the time. So it was uh, really enjoyable. So I know you, you got your love for inventing during your digital music network time, and you worked in a precursor to Winamp and iTunes and the whole music digital music setup. You saw that coming around the corner but how did you make the jump then onto Tombolo technologies and onto technology and onto all the patents that you have how, how did you make that jump from music and bringing music artists into town into basically being an inventor sure i made the jump because um when i was hired to be the ceo of digital music network i started looking at the existing ip and i really didn't know anything about patents at the time. And so I just committed myself to learn about the patents so that I could understand every element of our business. And as I started learning about them, I just really was intrigued by the fact that you could patent inventions and patent ideas because I had been all these years writing these notebooks with ideas that had no destination point. And so I was able to have an outlet for my ideas and to then start to refine those ideas to meet the market. And what I mean by that is you can't invent something that's going to be good 20 years from now. You have to invent something that's going to be good and going to be helpful to people within three years. Because otherwise, most companies who would be, unless you're going to drive it into the market yourself, which we do sometimes, most companies who you would partner with to drive an invention forward, they can't see beyond four quarters yeah. because they're so fixed on the quarterly structure of companies and having to deliver for shareholders and investors. And so honing that invention uh, sensibility and trying to forecast 
what's immediately next that people have not forecasted yet is one of the primary challenges of innovation. It sure is. We see it in Cataway here all the time as well. If you go too far ahead and you need to know that there's a need for that product or service or business model in the future, how do you deal with that, Gene? Well, for instance, um, sometimes we would be too far ahead. Like we were too far ahead with the green roadway portfolio where we defined solar and wind systems along roadways, which would then feed charging stations at gas stations for electric vehicles. Well, at the time, there was no electric vehicles uh, basically on the road. Very, very few. Tesla hadn't come along yet. There was no Volt. There was no, there were no mainstream vehicles on the road. And so when we first invented it, people said, no, that's not going to happen ever. Your portfolio is useless. Well, turned out that now we've got it licensed to, you know, the largest solar companies in the world and they've installed those systems. But it took us physically not just inventing and not just licensing, but actually going out and partnering with companies to build these systems that made it possible man i'd love if we actually deep dived into that a bit because i think that's just an awesome product can we talk about that for a second you were ahead of the market but you were so bang on what was required sure so what the green roadway is is it's a series of uh, solar and wind uh, gathering devices that are installed along the roadway and they're installed along the roadway to take advantage of the existing power infrastructure. And um, that power infrastructure allows for less line loss with solar and makes it more convenient to the actual grid that's in place rather than running long line runs from the desert or the ocean. And it also is very efficient in that it takes advantage of this footprint that is available by the side of many highways. And so it enables the gathering of the energy to either be fed back conveniently into the grid or to be fed to charging stations. And then we developed a full-on system that also included specific panels for cars, microwind turbines, all kinds of associated technologies, even thermal energy gathering from below the permafrost layer, just all ways that you could create efficient energy gathering systems tied them into a single gathering points and easy distribution points for use. And so literally people laughed at us yeah. when we came and presented the portfolio to them at first because they, it was during the Bush administration and they said, oh, solar's never going to happen. Electric vehicles are never going to happen. You know, wind is a very, very limited use case and get out. <laughs> yeah, but that that's so common. I mean, I, if you think about Yahoo turned down Google when Google tried to sell Yahoo, when you think about Reed Hastings, Netflix CEO trying to sell to Blockbuster and he was laughed out of the room literally like you, this is a pattern that happens all the time and still people don't realize because if you're going to be an innovator, you're going to be misunderstood. Yes, definitely. And it's a commitment to persevere if you want to be successful at it and um, it is not all a joyride by any means. There are times when, you know, you're going to question your, your decisions. You're going to question your inventions. You're going to question everything. And you have to be able to persevere through that and push through. And that links nicely back to your lessons to cope and, and get around the challenges you, you would have had in the education system with dyslexia. I guess my the way that um, I try and cope with things when they are not going well is essentially the same way that I try and cope with things when they're doing well, which is when you shut your eyes to go to sleep, that's your time to recharge. And then when you wake up the next day, that's the time to get after it again. Can you shut off well, Gene? Do you shut, do you, can you shut your mind down pretty well? Yes. Yeah. I can shut it all down. When it's time to shut it down, at the end of the day i can completely shut it down and um you know i i think that's the key to it is that whether things are going great or things are going poorly you wake up and it's a fresh day of opportunity sometimes people say 
uh, like you did in the in the introduction, you were you were very gracious in pointing out some of the things that uh, that have come into my life over the years. But I always tell people, you know, you're only as good as your last project. You're only as good as your your last day. Yeah. And and I believe that you yeah. need to do it every day, and that's kind of how I try and approach things. Yeah, that's kind of a very a sporting mindset as well. You're only as good as your last game. Because that's yes. just life, you know, and you don't rest on your laurels or you just won't get picked. So I'm just, I'm just trying to think where I <laughs> put us on another segue. We were talking about being too far ahead, and you said you were too far ahead with the green roadway. Um, mm. But you were, we were talking about how do you bring CEOs and leaders on that journey with you to understand that this is coming next? That's a great question. The job is, first of all, you have to um, either have a person who's willing to listen right from the start or figure out ways to get them to listen. You need to lay it out there in a logical business case for people so that they can see, okay, here's where the market is. Here's where I'm headed. Here's where you're headed. Here's where you could go if you implemented this technology. Here's what the potential market is for that. Here's the plain of what it would look like revenue-wise and profit-wise if you head on the course you are now, here's how implementing this technology can change that course. And if you can explain it that way, and you're talking to a CEO or CFO, and you lay it out step-by-step, step, the majority of people are going to understand that. Except CFO might start uh, <laughs> trying to block it, because he's, he's the guy trying to make the books balance, like you said earlier. Because you're being measured quarter to quarter or over 12 months, and and also that's where you're being bonused on. And they don't. I just yep. see. I, I actually see most in innovation initiatives by companies as control initiatives. They're trying to go. Okay, well we have an incubator, and innovation's all in control. And then you come in, and you 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 turn over some rocks that they don't want to see under, and you're kind of going, look over here. This is happening, and they just don't want to know because of measurement and i don't i don't blame people because you know they're incentivized in in the short term there's very very few leaders going okay i'm interested in the viability of my com company beyond my term i call it the global warming effect gene where people are like oh yeah well it's not going to affect me in my lifetime or before i retire there's a huge leadership problem in the world you struggle to find those leaders who actually want to go i want to plant the seeds for the future where i can see an oak tree where my kids can see the oak tree long after i'm gone you're exactly correct and a lot of those cfo discussions come down to a question that gets asked from a cfo which is can you guarantee it and of course when you roll out any new technology there is no guarantee yeah okay. you can only lay out a case for how it would work but yeah. a cfo is you know, they're looking rightfully to guide the ship of their company so that it's going to be successful and they don't want to take adverse risk. So they want as much defined clarity and certainty as possible. And of course, that runs contrary to anything that is brand new. Um, so it's interesting because you have to construct a likely success scenario and how that scenario looks but at the end of the day it is very difficult to guarantee that success it is possible to point out the roadmap in detail to that success but you're essentially guaranteeing that their organization is going to perform the whole way through and that the customer base is going to react to it the way that you think they're going to react to it you predict the way they react to it based upon market conditions but it, there are no guarantees. Yeah, and they have to do something. I mean, that's the that's the thing. It's like it often reminds me of of people who bet on horses. Like, you know, you're better off spreading your bets and betting on all the horses and have some foals growing in <laughs> in some offshoot somewhere that's like totally different race. They're going to be running, but you got to do that. Otherwise, you're going to lose ultimately. And um, yep. that's a challenge, man. That is, it's it's a big challenge in the world because. We're going to see more and more disruption. The business world is in flux, let alone from from a political standpoint. But you have customers' mindsets and values changing. Then you have new business models and disruptors coming up, and there's going to be companies disappearing a yep. lot, lot in the future. Well, you look at 
if you want to use a sports analogy, the teams that are most successful in sports are the ones who are making constant investments in their growth. Not just buying star players, but investing in minor league systems, investing in nutritional systems for their teams, investing in smart travel systems so their players don't get sick and they feel rested after travel. All those kind of things. Teams that are trying to actually innovate and invest in systems that will improve their team, not just by buying star players, but by utilizing technology, utilizing new systems, utilizing scouting and minor league systems and making big investments into those. If you want to look at teams in any professional league that have been dominant for the last 10 to 15 years, it's those teams that have made those investments. Yeah, you're true. You're right, man. And you look at teams like the All Blacks, the New Zealand rugby team, I mean, those guys are streets ahead because they're not followers. They're not Me Too offerings. They're actually sitting and they're testing out new regulations, new laws in the game. They're the first to test them out and they're going, yes, please, we'll do it because we'll understand it way better than others should, it, should they come in those laws. It's taken a long time for other other sports teams to understand that. Yep, absolutely. And in the U.S., with baseball teams, you see the executives who make the investments in minor league systems, and those are the teams who invariably are competitive year in and year out. I look at new technology in a way as minor league system. You develop and grow new technology until it's ready to be a major offering. If you're not trying to develop and grow that technology, if you're just trying to plug and play or follow, well... If you are following the leader, then that's what you are doing. You're following the leader. Yeah. So you can follow the leader or you can be the leader. I think actually, you know, we're going to see more and more more and more people in, in the world wanting to work for companies who have a real meaning and a real, uh, a real North Star, a place to go and that actually stand for something and, and want to change the world. And I don't, I don't think that's, a, that's not a kumbaya statement. That's... That's actually happening, and we're seeing that. And we're seeing people talk about millennials job hopping, but the, what I actually feel they're actually looking for companies who have purpose and meaning. I agree with you. I think that people are starting to realize, hey, I have one life. I'd like to do something that is positive and that makes the world a better place. That leads nicely, man, to your next jump, which is genetics and also your work with CBD. I've been doing research on CBD for the last few years, and we realized that CBD could be extremely helpful for people in terms of wellness and potentially easing pain, and it's a neuroprotectant, and the National Institute of Health here in the States about 12 years ago patented uh, various CBD and um, cannabinoid combinations for the sole purpose of treating conditions like Parkinson's and uh, epilepsy and very, very groundbreaking patents from the National Institute of Health. And then nothing really happened with the science. We started looking at it and started formulating a product, which we're extremely happy with called Therajoy. It's a topical CBD product, the strongest on the market at a thousand milligrams or four ounces. And we priced it below products that had inferior amounts of CBD in it because we want to get it into people's hands and help people. It's been wonderful. And our formula was based on a very specific concept, which is we wanted to pair the CBD with something that it's going to be able to deliver that CBD into the system. And so we use coconut oil because it has some very specific properties in it. Excellent as a delivery mechanism for the CBD. I heard you say before that it's the brain has receptors, obviously. So c CBD is uh, com f comes from the cannabis, right? It can come from cannabis, and it can also come from hemp. Ours is uh, hemp-based because we want to go along with what they call the Hemp Act in the United States, which the Senate passed, which says you can use any derivative of the hemp plant under the Hemp Act, and it's legal. So that allows us to provide our product to people in, in all 50 states and ship. And, um, and th so that's what we've been doing, and 
It's been wonderful. It's been probably the most gratifying thing that I've done in my career because I've got people coming up to me literally with tears in their eyes saying, I've been on meds for spinal stenosis for the last three years and I was able to go off my meds by using your product. That's just been incredible. And I believe in the product to the extent that I've gone around uh, myself, getting it into the first batches of uh, accounts in Los Angeles, our first uh, 26 accounts. And uh, it's been uh, before I brought on other sales reps that we have on now. And those first 26 accounts, we've already seen 22 reorder. So we know that the product has been welcomed by both the retailers and the consumers. And we know we're onto something special and we're in the process of uh, expanding our offerings to other therapeutic and wellness-based products that can help people. And we're super excited about doing that and bringing it into new markets. I tell you, man, it, it sounds amazing, and uh, it, it, so it goes beyond uh, anti-inflammatory. So it can help all types of inflammation, but it actually goes into brain uh, disorders, or you know, so stuff like Parkinson's and, uh, and Alzheimer's. It can help as well. Uh, I yep. just think it's all like I mean, it's like a cure-all disease for inflammatory. Yep, it's a, it is somewhat of a, it seems to be somewhat of a cure-all from people who have been using it because we've got people with bad backs, we've had people with foot problems, we've had people with neck and shoulder problems, with arthritic hands, and we've heard incredible feedback from all those folks so far. And then in terms of it being a neuroprotectant, what I tell people is rub some of this on the back of your neck rub about a teaspoon on the back of your neck all the way up to your brain stem. And for me, it gives me a feeling of um, both clarity and relaxation at the same time. And there, I, I should point out, this is 100% non-psychoactive. This does not make you high at all. That's what CBD is not something that's going to make you high. But it does have incredible impacts on people and you know anyone um who's thinking about it i would encourage them to try it and, and is it available online uh, from therajoy yes it is available online at therajoypharma.com cool man okay i'm, I'm gonna get me some of that i will send you a jar <laughs> i'll be rubbing it on my brain man before the show in the future that people will be like that guy speaks a lot clearer than he used to well, actually, that's what I do every morning is I rub a little on the back of my neck. And it's it's um, really good, I believe, for just general wellness and clarity. And Gene, I'm, I'm kind of blown away. There's so much stuff here. You work with the Global Good Foundation with Bill Gates and everything. So l- your, your patents that you have pending as well, like you've over 250 pending on top of the 100 that you have cleared already. And what are they around, those patents? Some of them are obviously your technology work with music, but what else have you got going there? There's some data patents. There's uh, um, quite a few that have to do with um, uh, medical delivery systems, um, which we we spent a, a good amount of time on trying to figure more convenient and less intrusive delivery systems into the body for things. Um, let's see, um, a lot of advanced data patents and AI, and then the project that we're working on right now is actually, uh, a virtual reality portfolio that we started in about 2006 or 2005. And that portfolio is really interesting because it defines the basic sensor mapping systems that all VR systems are essentially using right now, all true VR systems. And that will most likely be used in the future. And um, so right now we are um, utilizing the portfolio um, both as a, for licensing for uh, companies that are interested in that. And also we're developing the technology and, I'm developing it with uh, 
gentleman named Chad Hugo, who people may know as uh, half of the Neptunes, along with Pharrell Williams. And so we are working on a VR music project together um, for uh, an app, which we think will have very widespread appeal for folks. It's a it's a VR karaoke app. Nice, man. And, and um, it's a lot of fun, and uh, it's an uh, honor working with a guy like Chad, who's achieved so much in his career and is uh, such a talented artist and individual. So nice. that's been uh, really enjoyable developing that, developing that with him. I, c- I can see now why you need that sleep, man. <laughs> all the things you got, all the plates you got spinning on sticks here, uh, and the clarity of the TerraJoy products, but... Uh, that that sounds awesome. And when when is that going to hit the market? Do you think? Um, we're planning on completing it by fourth quarter. Gene Fine, it's been an absolute honor speaking to you. We wish you the very best with all your products and all your patents pending and otherwise. Gene Fine, inventor and all around good human. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Aiden. It's been an honor and a pleasure. I hope you have a wonderful evening.